0: The year 1862, the place New Mexico. A Civil War army of Texas volunteers invades the Southwest with dreams of a Confederate empire. The fate of a continent will be decided at Glorieta Pass, the Gettysburg of the West. I'm James Hauser and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 32, Gettysburg of the West. Guys, we have arrived at the final episode of season one, and I'm super excited that you're here for it, that you've come this far with me. Today's episode is also the first time in this podcast that I've really discussed the American Civil War, which was my first historical obsession way back when I was like nine or ten. But we're not talking about the stuff that already has movies and museums and 100,000 books written about it. No, this is unknown soldiers, so we're getting into one of the forgotten campaigns. This is the 1862 Confederate Invasion of New Mexico, a campaign that will climax at a small but important battle in Glorieta Pass, the high-water mark of Confederate ambitions west of the Mississippi, what has been called, mostly by New Mexico tourist industry, the Gettysburg of the West. And since this is the last episode of the season, at the end of this episode, I will tell you what you can expect going forward, how long I'll be gone for, when I'm coming back, what you can expect in the meantime. You won't hear my voice every week, and I know that breaks your heart, but when season two comes around in September, hopefully it's a bigger, better, even more successful version of the Unknown Soldiers podcast. But for now, let's round out the season with a trip to the West. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is mostly clean. (laughs) Content is not. I used two naughty words today. Ooh. One in the context of a quote. One is only a naughty word in some context, so it doesn't really count. Nothing too bad. It's still PG-13. In fact, I could drop one F-bomb, maybe two tops, and it would still be PG-13 according to MPAA standards, though I won't. (laughs) Anyway. All my sources, some images, some maps of this campaign will be posted on my website, UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com, so if you want it, that's where you can find it. You can probably just follow the campaign along on Google Maps, to be honest with you. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be Unknown Soldiers. Today's story begins on the road. Chances are that at least a few of you, my listeners, have passed through the scene of today's climax. If you have ever driven U.S. Interstate 25 between Santa Fe, New Mexico to Denver, Colorado, that means you have traveled directly through Glorieta Pass. And there are very few indicators that anything happened here. No Battlefield Park or Big Billboards or anything of the sort. So don't blame yourself if you don't notice or know about it. The New Mexico Campaign is one of the Civil War's great forgotten stories. With one exception, a movie. The classic spaghetti western, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, starring Clint Eastwood, takes place against a backdrop of the Civil War, including a major battle. Though it is never stated in the movie itself, never explicitly, this is the New Mexico Campaign. But the fact that the movie doesn't even mention what the campaign is, who's involved, or what battle it is shows us something that even a well-informed observer probably wouldn't catch the reference. See, most histories of the American Civil War feature the big events in the East. You know, Bull Run, Shiloh, Antietam, Gettysburg, Richmond, Atlanta, and Appomattox, Grant and Sherman, Lee and Stonewall Jackson, Lincoln and Davis, are big figures in that story, but don't even appear in this one most of the time. And these were the main and decisive theaters of the Civil War, that makes sense. For most people north and south, events way out in the barren, barely populated wastes of the southwest seemed almost irrelevant. The New Mexico campaign and the Battle of Glorieta Pass are pretty much a footnote in Civil War history. And I'll be honest with you guys, this was a very small campaign, fought between a few thousand men on each side rather than the big slugging matches at Gettysburg or Atlanta where armies could breach over 100,000. The difference between the audience at a high school football game and an NFL game This was the Civil War in the Wild West, an enormous and almost empty area where a few hundred men could tip the scales. But the struggle for New Mexico could have had major consequences for American history if it had gone a different way, because New Mexico was supposed to be step one. The Confederacy had its eyes on Colorado, even California, a slave empire stretching from sea to shining sea. Out here, far from the legendary battlefields in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, The Union and Confederacy were fighting for the future of the American West. Today, we'll be talking about the Confederate invasion of New Mexico from 1861 to 1862. We'll show how this fits into the broader Civil War story, how the idea for this campaign got set in motion, and what forces each side had available. We'll see the Confederate Army, a ragtag brigade recruited from Texas, march up the Rio Grande and fight its way into the heart of New Mexico. And we'll see how and why they were stopped at Glorieta Pass, the Gettysburg of the West. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is an epic march down dusty, distant trails, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, make a Starbucks run, chase the raccoons out of your garbage, do the thing you need to do. So put on that Stetson, check your six shooter, and take as much water as you can carry. No, more. Abs, take more. Because we're going on campaign. Let's set the scene. July 1861. Three months ago, the Confederate states fired on Fort Sumter and began the Civil War. Volunteer units are forming both north and south. There are parades in New York City, Richmond, Philadelphia, and Atlanta as troops hop on trains and head to Virginia, where everyone is gearing up for the first battle of the war. Most people think that one battle will decide the whole thing, and only a few realize what a long, terrible conflict this is going to be. These are the early days, the days when everything is still up in the air. The American Civil War has begun, and far from those newly formed armies that are about to fight the Battle of Bull Run in Northern Virginia, events are unfolding in the Southwest. On July 3rd, 1861, a band of 300 horsemen rode into El Paso, Texas. The small sleepy frontier town had a population of 428. 427 white inhabitants, and one free black man who probably slept with his back to the wall. The newcomers raised the Confederate stars and bars over both the town and the abandoned federal installation at Fort Bliss. Their leader was Lieutenant Colonel John Robert Baylor of the 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles. Baylor was a tall, fierce-looking man with a long beard and hard eyes. He was ambitious and short-tempered, his overriding personality trait a near-frothing-at-the-mouth hatred for the American Indian. Colonel Baylor was the Confederacy's new commander in West Texas. Before the war began, Texas had contained one of the largest concentrations of U.S. Army garrisons and installations, and ever since they seceded in January 1861, Texas state militias have been busy confiscating this federal property. As Texan forces fanned out across the state to seize all this United States property, John Baylor and his battalion of the 2nd Texas Mounted Rifles had been sent west to secure Fort Bliss. They had crossed hundreds of miles of barren West Texas desert to do it, and mission accomplished. But Colonel Baylor and many of his fellow Texans looked north and west where an empire awaited them. The Confederacy had its eyes on Arizona and New Mexico. So guys, I don't think you need that much background on the American Civil War, forgive me if you do. It is pretty common knowledge how this war got started, what the issues at hand were, (coughs) slavery, (coughs) and you probably even know the very broad strokes. But like I said, at this early point in the war, the battle lines in a lot of the border regions, Kentucky, Missouri, Indian Territory, aka modern Oklahoma, were still unclear. And out here in the far west, the border was even fuzzier. See, when the Union split in 1861, the question of the territories was undecided. Sure, these states up here had chosen the North, these states down here had chosen the South, but the territories, those areas of the America that weren't yet states, were under federal jurisdiction, and these included the New Mexico Territory. In 1861, the New Mexico Territory contained the modern states of Arizona and New Mexico, along with the very bottom tip of Nevada. Less than 95,000 U.S. citizens lived in the region, most of whom were still Spanish-speaking Hispanics. It was only a couple decades and a half since America had taken this territory from Mexico. The only real U.S. government presence were the U.S. Army forces in their scattered forts. Their mission was to keep an eye on the local American Indians, especially the Apache, who terrorized the entire southern half of the territory like they lived there or something. The U.S. Army was already overstretched before the Civil War, but the arrival of Baylor and his Texans in El Paso to the south meant that they had new problems. See, Texas and New Mexico had beef. When Texas gained its independence from Mexico after the battles of the Alamo and San Jacinto in 1836, they had laid claim to most of New Mexico as part of their state's rightful territory, like they believed New Mexico was part of Texas. They had even tried to conquer it from Mexico in the failed Santa Fe Expedition of 1841, but New Mexican militia had surrounded and captured that expedition. After Texas and New Mexico were both part of the United States after the Mexican-American War, Texas state politicians and officials had tried to gain control over the eastern part of New Mexico territory. And this issue was exacerbated by the issue of slavery. One of the main issues in lead-up to the Civil War was the question of whether slavery would be allowed in the territories, in the non-state territories. Southerners had ambitions of expanding slavery to the Pacific, and New Mexico would necessarily be the first target on that list. So when the Civil War broke out, most of New Mexican residents were justifiably worried about Texas' ambitions. This fear meant that most New Mexicans would side with the Union. But there were still large pro-Confederate factions within the territory. In March 1861, before the firing on Fort Sumter, The citizens of Mesilla near Fort Bliss and Tucson out west in future Arizona both declared their support for the Confederacy, and they petitioned to establish a Confederate territory of Arizona inside the boundaries of New Mexico territory. And keep in mind, this would not have been supported by the majority of the Spanish-speaking population. I mean, the Confederates are already racist enough, how bad were they going to be against the Hispanics? (laughs) The campaign I'll talk about today was almost a regional conflict, a New Mexico versus Texas conflict, as much as it was Union versus Confederate. Say what you will about most state rivalries, but they usually don't involve shooting anymore. Usually. Beyond just the Texas angle, the Confederacy as a whole had its eyes on New Mexico. The dream of a great southern empire stretching from sea to shining sea, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, while If that was ever going to happen, like so many Confederates intended, New Mexico would have to be the first step. Many shared this dream, including Lieutenant Colonel John Robert Baylor. I should remind you guys, at this point in history, the lands we're talking about were extremely remote, empty, with very little development. Yes, the United States was an industrialized country with railroads and telegraphs and stuff, but not in New Mexico. No railroads out here. Only dusty trails stretching across hundreds of miles of open land. Tribes of American Indians, especially Apache and Comanche, still roamed free. Small dusty towns with new settlers, isolated ranches, wagon trains, and watering holes. This is literally the Wild West, and it too would fall on the dividing line of the Civil War. I do have to talk real quick about the geography of New Mexico just to set up the battleground. Most of New Mexico's main population centers are and were along the Rio Grande River, which runs north-south through the center of the state. From north to south, it goes Santa Fe, then Albuquerque, then El Paso in Texas. And the U.S. Army also had multiple outposts in the state, small, tough fortresses made to house a few companies of bluecoats. You know, the dusty cavalry fort on the outskirts of civilization, Wild West. New Mexico's commander in July 1861 was a rock-solid regular army officer, Colonel Edward Richard Sprigg Canby of the 19th U.S. Infantry was not the first choice to lead the Department of New Mexico, but all his bosses had defected to the Confederacy. It was obviously pretty demoralizing for the New Mexico garrison to see a bunch of their leaders handing in their resignations and riding off into Texas. Hey guys, next time you see Colonel So-and-so, he's going to be trying to kill you. One of these U.S. Army officers joining the Confederacy was a cavalry officer, Major Henry Hopkins Sibley, who called out to the soldiers that he once led as he rode by them, Boys, if you only knew it, I am the worst enemy you have. Yeah, imagine your boss quits his job and immediately tells you on the way out, yeah, I'm coming back to kill you guys. (laughs) Well, Henry Sibley would certainly try to be their worst enemy, because Henry Hopkins Sibley would lead the Confederate invasion of New Mexico. Canby and Sibley, the men who would fight for New Mexico, were the living proof of civil war. They had been West Point classmates and Canby had even been Sibley's best man at his wedding. They had served together for years on the New Mexico frontier. They had literally just been on campaign together against the Navajo. And now they would be on opposite sides of the coming campaign. The tall, thin, gray-headed Edward R.S. Canby was 44 years old. It was said that no one knew military law and army regulations better and he was a careful administrator and organizer, a quiet professional. So when even he sent messages to Washington, D.C. saying stuff like, Hey, New Mexico is super duper vulnerable right now, someone should have listened. Canby originally had 2,500 regular army troops to hold the whole territory, but the War Department had ordered most of those guys east to fight in the coming major battles of the Civil War. So Canby only had a skeleton crew left. So he ended up abandoning lots of the smaller, more, you know, distant forts and concentrating his men at three key fortresses to hold the territory against the Confederates. These were Fort Fillmore to the south near Mesilla, which would keep an eye on the Southerners. Fort Craig, midway up the road between El Paso and Albuquerque on the west bank of the Rio Grande, and Fort Union in the northeast, the critical link on the Pioneer trail between Santa Fe and Kansas City. Canby could lose every other fort, even the towns of Albuquerque and Santa Fe. But if Fort Union fell, the territory fell. To man all these forts, Colonel Canby had to raise volunteer units from the New Mexico citizenry. The first New Mexico regiment was led by Colonel Kit Carson, the famous American explorer and mountaineer. But these companies were slow to form up, it was hard to get, get these regiments together and arm them and train them and the arrival of Baylor's Texans in El Paso posed a growing threat. Canby started to grow desperate. How could he hold New Mexico against the Confederates and the Apache with so few men? Didn't the War Department realize the danger? But keep in mind, Abe Lincoln and his cabinet had 20,000 things to worry about right now, and one very anxious colonel out in the middle of nowhere was far from the top priority. But Canby was right. In July 1861, disaster struck. Colonel John Baylor led his Texas Volunteers north from Fort Bliss into the southern reaches of New Mexico Territory. The first Union force he ran into was the 7th Infantry at Fort Fillmore, near Modern day las Cruces, New Mexico, led by Major Isaac Lind. Lind was completely out of his depth, a doddering gray beard whose long, quiet career had not prepared him for the horde of Texans roaring up the Rio Grande. He was initially paralyzed by Baylor's attack, then ordered a half-hearted assault on the Confederate-held town of Messia on July 25, 1861. Keep in mind, this is occurring four days after the First Battle of Bull Run, way off in Virginia, the first major battle of the Civil War. The attack Lind launched was pathetic. Despite the courage of his men, he retreated to the fort after only a few shots were fired. The next day, Lind made a bad decision worse by abandoning Fort Fillmore when he could have easily held it. Baylor's men harassed the Union troops across the dusty trails of New Mexico until all order collapsed. Surrounded and demoralized, Major Lind surrendered 500 U.S. Army regular troops to Baylor's force of less than 300 Texas volunteers. It was an utter humiliation, a devastating blow to the Union cause in New Mexico. Canby's forces in the territory had been reduced by almost a quarter. The road into New Mexico was open, John Baylor and his Texans had initiated the Confederate conquest of the Southwest. Keep in mind, no one was paying attention. Back east, the Battle of Bull Run dominated the newspapers and the attention of both Union and Confederate governments. That had been a battle versus tens of thousands versus tens of thousands of men on either side. Compared to that, the Battle of 500 versus 300 at Mesilla was small potatoes. But the disaster at Mesilla had proved that New Mexico was extremely vulnerable can be warned the government that if a decent force of rebels made its way out here, we might not just lose New Mexico, guys, we might lose the West altogether. On August 1st, 1861, Colonel Baylor issued a proclamation establishing a brand new Confederate territory of Arizona, with its capital at Mesilla, and huh, would you look at that, John Baylor as the governor. The Confederate Arizona territory, spoiler alert, would not last a year but its brief existence was defined by the violent whim of its governor. Baylor was infamously hot-headed and aggressive, and tried to rule like a petty tyrant. He had a bad habit of going nuts and murdering people, which is honestly not that uncommon in 19th century America. When the Messia Times printed articles critical of his administration, Baylor confronted, then shot and killed, the paper's editor. Free speech, right? (laughs) He suffered no punishment because he was the governor, and everybody was terrified of him. But if Baylor hated reporters, he really hated Indians. By claiming possession of New Mexico territory, this meant the Confederacy also inherited a tiny little Apache problem stupid games, stupid prizes. With the withdrawal of most U.S. troops and fighting breaking out in New Mexico, the Indians of the Southwest basically said, Hey guys, don't even know what they're fighting over, what's all this about, but you know what this means for us? Open season. Soon, Canby and Baylor were both dealing with large-scale Indian raiding. So yeah, it's another feature of the Civil War out here in the West. The Native Americans, the American Indians, are a factor too, and they're making their own choices about who to side with or not side with. Colonel Canby refused to be distracted, concentrating on the main Confederate threat to the South. But John Baylor basically went Tasmanian devil and started chasing the Apache all across Arizona. But he was dealing with the brilliant Apache war leaders, Cochise and Mangus, Colorados, So it was like leading the cat around with a laser pointer, like this guy was getting nowhere. Baylor got so frustrated that he sent an order saying this. I learned that the Indians have been to your posts for the purpose of making a treaty the congress of the confederate states has passed a law declaring extermination of all hostile indians you will therefore use all means to persuade the apaches or any tribe to come in for the purpose of making peace and when you get them together kill all the grown indians and take the children prisoner and sell them to defray the expense so yeah john baylor's response to literally any issue was murder Well, unfortunately for him, A, the Apache did not fall for this, and B, the Confederate Congress had passed no such law, and Baylor would soon be in hot water with Jefferson Davis. The South was currently trying to win over neutral Indian tribes in the Indian Territory, so Colonel Genocide McGee down here was not helping with the PR campaign. If that wasn't bad enough, Baylor's men were badly overstretched trying to fight the Indians. There's only a few hundred of them out here. There was no way they could conquer the rest of New Mexico alone. Enter Henry Hopkins Sibley, a 45-year-old Louisianan with a big bushy mustache and a sketchy reputation. Sibley had served on the frontier for years, most recently in New Mexico alongside his best man and West Point classmate, Colonel Canby. He had patented military equipment, including the Sibley camp stove and the Sibley tent, much of which was used by both armies during the Civil War. But people who had served with Sibley knew something else about him. Sibley was an alcoholic and not a functional one. He apparently had some sort of kidney disease, either the cause of or caused by his drinking. So Sibley would spend very large portions of the upcoming campaign lying down in one of his ambulance wagons, too drunk to function. Well, boys, I'll be in the drinking wagon. I'm sure this will have no effect on the campaign whatsoever. Everything's going to go fine. But in August 1861, Sibley was in Richmond meeting with Confederate President Jefferson Davis, he had just come from New Mexico, remember he ran out saying I'm the worst enemy you're ever going to have, and he believed it was ripe for the picking. Sibley wanted to raise a volunteer force in Texas to conquer New Mexico and add it to the Confederacy. He pitched it as a low-risk, high-reward strategy. It would cost relatively few troops and supplies, and the potential benefit was enormous. Jeff Davis said, Uh, eh, what do I have to lose? Knock yourself out, dude. And commissioned Sibley, a brigadier general in the Confederate army. But Sibley's ambitions were much bigger than he revealed to Jeff Davis. After taking New Mexico, he wrote in a letter that he planned to lead his troops to Colorado, Utah, and California. The wealth of the California gold rush could fall to the south. The capture of San Francisco and Los Angeles could open up Pacific trade to the Confederacy. And finally, Sibley saw a western conquest as a launch pad for filibusters. He talked in letters about invading northwest Mexico, and adding to the Confederacy, following in William Walker's footsteps to expand slavery into Latin America. Many of the men who followed Sibley into New Mexico were filibusters or filibuster-associated. Many of them were even veterans of William Walker's campaigns. These were big dreams, and to be honest, they were pretty unrealistic. But this was also a very optimistic time for the Confederacy, one of the only times in the Civil War when they could dream this big. They had been victorious at Bull Run, they still held virtually all of their claimed territory, and the North was still getting its crap together. If there was a time in the life cycle of the Confederacy for pie-in-the-sky ambitions, it was late 1861, when the Union hadn't really started bringing the hammer down yet. So Sibley headed back to Texas with General stars on his shoulders in a mission, raise an army, lead it west to El Paso, beat his best man in battle, and conquer New Mexico. Sibley arrived in San Antonio and began raising a volunteer brigade. This wasn't easy. Lots of the most eager volunteers had already signed up for the Confederate Army, including units that went east to eventually fight under Robert E. Lee as the famous Texas Brigade. It was hard for Sibley to get his hands on weapons, horses, or money. The Confederacy was short of everything. But he eventually scraped together 3,500 men from all corners of Texas. This small force was dubbed the Army of New Mexico. The Army of New Mexico was a Texas Army through and through. It consisted of the 4th, 5th, and 7th Texas Mounted Volunteers, led by an assortment of hard-fighting officers. Lieutenant Colonel William R. Scurry of the 4th Texas was a Mexican War veteran, and the fiery Colonel Thomas Green of the 5th Texas had fought in the Texas War of Independence. Colonel Green's, One of Colonel Green's battalion commanders, Major Samuel Lockridge, was a veteran of William Walker's war in Nicaragua. The brigade's men were inheritors of a Texas military tradition, the idea that a good old Lone Star boy with his paws, rifle, and his faithful horse was a born warrior. One officer described them as, the best that ever threw leg over horse, all around men, natural born soldiers. The vast majority were under 25 and a lot of them were under 18. At least one, I think, was 15 years old. The army of New Mexico's morale was sky high and its discipline was non-existent. The volunteers chafed at the slightest imposition of military order, and they were extremely ill-equipped. They simply hadn't scraped up enough guns or weapons or money. They wore a mix of Confederate gray, captured Union uniforms, or even just random clothes they brought from home. Most rode their own horses that they brought from home. The army had some artillery pieces, consisting of mountain howitzers seized from the Federal Arsenal at San Antonio, but the individual weapons were brought from home, (laughs) an assortment of, quote, squirrel guns, bear guns, sportsman's guns, shotguns, both single and double barrels, in fact, guns of all sorts. Wow, yeah, that won't have any effect on the supply chain either. The Southerners were so short on weapons that two companies of the 5th Texas were armed with, um, lances, spears, If you say, James, spears have no place in the Civil War, (laughs) you are absolutely correct, as we will find out, and they will find out also the hard way. So this was the Army of New Mexico. This was General Sibley's elite strike force to go conquer the West from the U.S. Army. This freaking rodeo show of yipping Texans in checkered shirts and shotguns with their general in his drinking wagon. But that didn't mean they weren't dangerous. They only stood a chance at all because Colonel Edward Canby's Union force was so overstretched. Canby received word that Sibley was coming and sent messages to Washington, D.C., Denver, Colorado, and San Francisco, pleading for anyone, come help us. Help was promised, but until then, Canby's small force of U.S. regulars and New Mexico volunteers would have to hold the line against Sibley's Texas warriors. In October 1861, Sibley's brigade began the long 630-mile march from San Antonio to El Paso. The march was a trial all on its own, the Texans struggling across the old stagecoach trail, totally unused to hard marching and travel. Men were already sick, and horses were showing signs of exhaustion by the time the brigade finally assembled at Fort Bliss in January 1862. Upon Sibley's arrival, John Baylor threw a fit that he had been superseded in command. Yeah, because he went running off after the Indians like a maniac. The disgusted Baylor rode east back into Texas, determined to raise his own brigade and come retake his rightful place as kingpin of Arizona territory. But Sibley had his eyes to the north, on his best man's union force at Fort Craig up the Rio Grande. The stage was set. The New Mexico campaign was about to begin. Sibley's ragtag Texans and Colonel Canby's hardened regulars and union volunteers were about to struggle for the future, of the American West. In early February 1862, General Sibley and the Army of New Mexico began to move up the Rio Grande along the modern I-25. He left a large garrison behind to hold El Paso and Mesilla, along with many men who had taken sick along the road. So the Confederates numbered 2,515 men, the 4th and 5th Texas Mounted Volunteers, a battalion of the 7th Volunteers, a battalion of Baylor's 2nd Mounted Rifles, and a company of local ruffians called the Santa Fe Gamblers. And the Army of New Mexico, like every Confederate army, whether they mention it or not, they usually don't, march with at least 100 enslaved black people, serving as cooks, servants, wagon drivers, and laborers. We do not know a lot about these guys, only brief mentions from Confederate letters, otherwise I would tell you a lot more about them. The rebels brought 15 light artillery pieces, a long wagon train, and a herd of beef cattle along with them, a ragtag army, to conquer a Confederate empire. But to do that, they would have to deal with Colonel Edward Canby. The Union commander gathered most of his forces at Fort Craig on the west bank of the Rio Grande, directly in Sibley's path. Fort Craig was garrisoned by almost 3,800 men, 1,200 of them U.S. Army regulars from the 5th, 7th, and 10th U.S. Infantry and the 1st and 3rd Cavalry. The rest were volunteers and militia, mostly Hispanic New Mexicans. Despite being outnumbered, most of the Texans believed that their natural fighting ability and courage would easily overpower the Yankee scum. This was very typical Confederate cockiness this early in the war. The Army of New Mexico would have to deal with Fort Craig one way or another, and this was for one very big reason, the factor that really determined who won or lost the American West in the Civil War. This was our old friend, the Iron Hand of Logistics. Sibley's army was small by Civil War standards, only 2,500 men. Out east, where Grant's and Lee's armies would be tens of thousands strong, railroads and steamboats and rich farmlands and good roads could support that. But out here in New Mexico, even 2,500 men were almost unsupportable. The iron hand of logistics, remember the rule of thumb. A pre-modern army could not carry its own rations farther than 170 miles around 14 days march before it was in trouble, no matter how many animals and men you use. And for Sibley's plan to succeed, he would need to travel farther than that. From Sibley's start point at Fort Thorne near modern-day Hatch, New Mexico, all the way to Albuquerque, was 180 miles, as the crow flew. And if there wasn't food at the end of that road, he was screwed. Because the Confederate Army was making marching up a dusty stagecoach trail through a dry, arid region with very low population and scarce water sources. Local food sources were not present in the deserts of New Mexico. Sibley's solution to this problem was to capture the well-stocked Fort Craig and the supply depots in Albuquerque and Santa Fe intact. This was a no-fail mission. If it did fail, his army would starve. I will say this. Any campaign plan that requires you to capture enemy supplies to survive is probably a bad one. This was actually the German logic in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, We have to capture Allied fuel supplies to keep our panzers running because we don't have enough fuel. It didn't work because it assumes the one thing you never assume in warfare, that your enemy is dumb enough to let you do whatever you want. (laughs) This was the big flaw in the Confederate plan. Because Sibley's men weren't the big challenge, feeding them wasn't the really big issue. Feeding the horses was the army of new mexico consisted of the fourth fifth and seventh texas mounted volunteers along with the battalion of the second texas all on horseback along with all those cannons and that baggage train all horse drawn those horses needed lots of forage without it they would start to die no more cannons or carts or mounted volunteers so sibley was fighting the clock defeat canby and seize the union supplies before the iron hand of logistics closed around his neck to pull this off, what the Confederacy needed was someone with energy and determination, someone like Stonewall Jackson out here leading this campaign. What they had was Sibley and his drinking wagon. The Confederate Army began to arrive outside Fort Craig on February 13, 1862. Desert or not, New Mexico can be very cold in the winter, and the rebels shivered in a snowstorm as they stared at the fortress. After scouting the area, Sibley decided that storming Fort Craig was probably not doable. It was too strong, too well-armed, and too well-supplied. So he would need to lure Canby into a fight on the open plain. Come on, dude! Let's settle this out in the open! But the Union forces would not accept battle on Sibley's terms. Colonel Thomas Greene's 5th Texas harassed the Union troops for several days, trying to draw them out into the open field, where Sibley's mobile, mobile horsemen might have the advantage. But Canby refused to take his old friend's bait. Hey, dude, you want me? Come get me. So Sibley had a problem. Fort Craig blocked his path north, he needed the supplies inside it, and Canby refused to walk into his very obvious trap. His army only had 10 days of rations remaining. Canby inside the fort with his ample supplies would last much longer than Sibley outside it. This is the kind of thing that's like step one of an operational plan. What do we do if the enemy doesn't behave the way we want him to behave? Well, Sibley knew how to solve this problem. Don't mind me, boys. I'll be in the drinking wagon. So as the Army of New Mexico was lashed by a sandstorm, Sibley turned command over to Colonel Green and spent a couple of days on his back in the ambulance cart, drunk out of his mind. But Tom Green had a darn good head on his shoulders. Not the guy who made Freddy Got Fingered. Not the Canadian com- comedian, different Tom Green. Colonel Green proposed that the rebels cross the Rio Grande, bypass Fort Craig via the rocky wilderness east of the river, and recross to the north at a ford called Valverde. This would flank Canby's position either force him to come out and fight, or allow them to rush north to Albuquerque, seize his supply depot, and cut his supply line. It was a risky plan, but it seemed like the only way forward. With Sibley, um, indisposed... Green set the plan into motion. The Confederate Army crossed the Rio Grande seven miles south of Fort Craig and started working their way into the rugged volcanic hills near what is now White Sands Missile Range in eastern New Mexico. The Texans struggled to move their cannons and wagons over the jagged hillsides through the sand and the rock and the valleys and the scrub. The road had been miserable enough. This was New Mexico backcountry. You want to replicate the experience. Go get your kid's radio flyer wagon loaded up with cinder blocks and try to go drag it through the woods. <laughs> By February 20th, the Texans were within sight of Fort Craig and Camby had figured out what they were up to. He sent troops across the river to harass Sibley's advance and made plans to head off the Confederates at the Rio Grande River crossing at Val Verde. If he could keep the rebels east of the river, they would have to turn back the way they had come and their campaign would be over. Sibley's army spent a long, miserable night, cold and dry and windy, on February 20th, shivering under their thin blankets in the hills above Valverde Ford. That night, Union forces attempted one of the dumbest bits of tomfoolery in military history. Captain James Graydon, nicknamed Patty, was a notorious Army veteran and saloon owner who had raised a company of volunteer scouts. This was the Union Army's resident knucklehead, brave and creative, but also kind of dumb. Graydon had the amazing idea of harnessing boxes of artillery shells to the backs of a few mules. He and his scouts led the mules close to the confederate camp in the middle of the night. Then Graydon's men lit the fuses and gave the mules a slap, sending the dumb animals running towards Sibley's cattle herd. I suppose you can think of an acronym for this. The Mule-Born Improvised Explosive Device, M-B-I-E-D, an MBID. But when the mules saw Graydon and his men running off, probably giggling like middle schoolers in a sex ed class, the mules were like, hey, those are the guys that feed us. Where are you going? You have to feed us. <laughs> and they started chasing them, the fuses still burning. So two mules with lit bombs on their backs were chasing a bar owner and his idiot friends in the sandy hills of New Mexico. I'm Patty Graydon, and welcome to Jackass, Civil War Edition. The mules exploded, damaging no one but themselves, and the Confederates were like, what was that? They went back to sleep. Yeah, that was, this was pretty stupid and pointless, but I thought it was really funny, so I figured I'd share it. Dawn came on February 21st, 1862, with both sides headed for a showdown. Sibley ordered most of his army to launch a diversion near Fort Craig, while Major Pyron's four companies of the 2nd Texas rode to secure the river crossing at Valverde. Canby's scouts detected the move, and he sent some horsemen of his own up to Valverde to block the Confederate advance. The two forces almost ran into each other on the east side of the Rio Grande, before dismounting and running to cover. The opening shots of the Battle of Valverde were fired by these small detachments of cavalry, ducking and weaving behind scattered trees and sand embankments. Soon Union Captain Alexander McCray rolled up with his six-gun artillery battery, and the whistling of shells added to the growing din across the sandy plain. Captain McRae, West Point class of 1851, was a North Carolinian who had stayed loyal to the Union despite the pleas of his family. Not every Southern officer abandoned the Stars and Stripes. Colonel Scurry's 4th Texas raced down the hill to reinforce Pyron, tying their horses to trees before taking cover behind sand embankments. As the Texans fired against the Union troops, they realized something that Unknown Soldiers podcast listeners already know. The Texans were armed with revolvers, squirrel guns, bear guns, and shotguns, but the U.S. Army regulars were armed with minier rifles, and their cannons outranged any artillery the Southerners had. The Texans ducked to avoid the musket balls and iron shrapnel whizzing above their heads. Sergeant Albert Petticollis of C. Company, 4th, Texas, described seeing one of his comrades shot in the mouth. His tongue nearly shot out. He pulled out a part of it which was hanging ragged to the edge of the tongue and cut it off with his knife. Hmm, that's the second time in a short while in this podcast that we've seen tongue gore. Which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. But the rain of fire pouring over the Texans' heads began to thud into the bodies of their horses and mules, the animals they would depend on to get them through the campaign. The cries of the trapped animals were horrifying, and many of them managed to break free and bolted. Pedicolus remembered, when we were ordered to mount to move farther to the right, hardly half of Company C found horses to mount. As the Battle of Valverde continued to heat up, both sides sent reinforcements. A column of black-hatted regular infantry came marching up from Fort Craig and splashed across the Rio Grande in freezing chest-high water before pitching into the Confederate lines with bayonets. And as the critical battle of the New Mexico campaign seemed to be unfolding, Sibley was... Well, you can guess, he was sloshed, on his back in the drinking wagon. One Confederate soldier reported, The commanding general was an old army officer whose love for liquor exceeded that for home, country, or God. Colonel Thomas Green took control of the Army of New Mexico and led his 5th Texas to join the Confederate lines at Valverde. He was just in time. Minutes later, Canby himself arrived with the bulk of the Union force, including the New Mexico volunteers and a company of Coloradans. A small skirmish for the Ford was developing into the showdown for New Mexico. The Battle of Valverde was small, with no more than 3,000 men engaged on either side, compared to Bull Run eight months beforehand with around 30,000 on either side. But that didn't mean it wasn't fierce. The dry plain along the Rio Grande zipped with musket balls, cracked with revolvers and shotguns, and rolled with the registers of cannons. Small clusters of ragtag Texans flitted back and forth under cover as the Union artillery roared and the blue lines of regular infantry and New Mexico volunteers slowly advanced. The battle was going very poorly for the Texas invaders. At this point, the two Lancer Companies of the Fifth Texas stormed onto the field, wielding their long spears tipped with red pennants, almost like they were at a medieval tournament. Yep, these guys totally belong in the Civil War. The Lancers launched a charge at an isolated company of Colorado volunteers, forty troopers thundering across the plain in a tight column. You gotta imagine one of these Colorado guys being like, Are are, are those spears? Are you serious? shame. <laughs> the Union troops fired two volleys at 10 paces, and that about did it. Only three Texans returned unhurt from this miniature Charge of the Light Brigade, the only Lancer Charge of the American Civil War. And probably shouldn't have even, that's one more than there should have been. By now it was about 2 p.m., and Canby decided that he was winning the battle. It was time to crush his opponent. His blue coats were slowly pushing the Confederates back, their discipline and fire overwhelming the ragtag Texans. Camby ordered his artillery to cross the river to gain flanking fire on either side of the Confederate line, then started shifting his troops around to roll up the rebels from the south. Camby might not just stop Sibley at Valverde, he might destroy him. Seeing his men pinned down by the Union fire, Colonel Green made a snap decision. The worst thing to do was sit here and wait to be destroyed. He ordered the Texans to charge the Union artillery batteries on the north side of the line, hoping to take advantage of the confusion as Canby's men reoriented for the final push. And just as Green's men went over to the attack, Canby delivered a confusing order to the New Mexican colonel, Colonel Kit Carson. The New Mexicans marched the wrong way, leaving Captain McRae's artillery battery dangerously exposed and without infantry support. These two events combined to turn the tide of the battle. 750 Texans suddenly rose up and raced across the open field towards McCrae's guns, led by Major Samuel Lockridge, aka Nicaragua Lockridge, a veteran of William Walker's filibusters in Central America. The Texans sprinted like maniacs through a storm of fire. They swarmed McCray's guns with a fiendish yell, shooting revolvers and shotguns, stabbing with knives, and bashing with the clubs of rifles. Both Union Captain McCrae and Confederate Major Lockridge fell dead at almost the same moment, The melee around the cannons was intense, both sides kicking up dust, parched by thirst, blinded by smoke. Sergeant Petticola saw a Union artillery sergeant explode the artillery wagon he was sitting on, taking him and several Confederates along with the explosion. Both sides fought like wildcats, like it was any of the big battles back east, like it was Shiloh or Antietam. But the Confederates finally seized the guns and turned them on their former owners. The Texan attack decided the battle. With the Union artillery advantage nullified and his left wing broken, Canby took a look at the situation and ordered his forces to retreat back to the fort. The Texans tried to pursue, but the Union troops held them off, the New Mexican troops holding the rear guard, recrossing the Rio Grande in good order. Canby's army returned to Fort Craig defeated but unbroken. The Battle of Valverde was a Confederate tactical victory, and it was Tom Green's victory, not Sibley's. Green had been fighting Canby. Sibley had been fighting Sobriety. Canby had done almost everything right, had the battle almost won before his garbled order and Green's counterattack. Of course, almost only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades. Canby would blame the New Mexicans for allegedly running away, which was A, poor form, B, untrue, and C, revealed his latent racism common in all Americans at the time, not Canby's finest hour in this case. Valverde was a small battle, and the Union suffered 68 killed, 160 wounded, and 35 captured, versus the Confederate 36 dead, and 150 wounded. And 200 Union New Mexico militia decided that was enough civil war for one lifetime and deserted. The Confederates captured all six of Captain McRae's guns, and were free to cross the Rio Grande unmolested. So, Confederate victory, right? Well, sort of. Because the Union artillery fire had heavily damaged Sibley's army. The Confederates lost a staggering number of horses to the Union guns, so many that the 4th Texas Mounted Infantry was no longer mounted infantry, it was dismounted, it would fight the rest of the campaign on foot and the loss of pack animals during the battle meant that many wagons, including a lot of baggage, would have to be left behind. But finally, battles are fought for reasons, not just for the sake of battle. A battle is supposed to accomplish something. What the Confederates had gotten was a technical victory, a victory on paper and a few cannons. What they had needed was to destroy Canby's army or force it to surrender, so they could get the supplies in Fort Craig and eliminate their main opposition in the territory. But when Sibley called on Canby to surrender Fort Craig and its supplies, Canby said, "Huh, nope. We might have taken some hits, true, but we've still got guns and we know how to use them. Told you before, bro. Battle doesn't change anything. You want me? Come get me." Both sides were back to square one. Sibley's army now had only five days of rations left, and Fort Craig now sat between them and all communications with Confederate territory. The Battle of Valverde, in the end, had decided nothing. With no other option, Sibley decided to continue marching north, hoping to seize the federal supply dumps in Albuquerque. The Army of New Mexico continued its winter march, men suffering and straggling from the trials of the road. Soon they were on half rations, since their food supplies were nearly gone. Confederate cavalry confiscated food from the locals, building up plenty of ill-feeling, especially since the New Mexicans could barely feed themselves. Everything they had always feared about the violent, thieving Texans was being proven true. But Sibley's army moved too slowly. A commander with a strong will and lots of energy might have pushed them harder. But Sibley was in and out of his drinking wagon and his uninspired troops staggered north. And the lack of effective command would cost them. When Sibley's army finally came within sight of Albuquerque on March 2nd, they saw smoke rising from the small city. The Texans rode in to find the Union supply dumps... destroyed. Because Edward Canby had been one step ahead of them. He could have panicked and given up after losing the Battle of Valverde, but he was a calm professional who not only understood the iron hand of logistics, but how to use it against his opponent. How to lose a battle, but still win a campaign. As soon as his forces had retreated to Fort Craig, Canby sent a few companies of the 1st and 3rd U.S. Cavalry, along with some New Mexico militia, with a simple mission. Evacuate or destroy every supply dump in Sibley's path. Maybe Canby's army couldn't defeat the Confederates, but the Iron Hand of Logistics could. Without a new source of supplies, Sibley's army would starve. It would fall apart on its own, and Canby wouldn't have to lift a finger. Sibley's men confiscated what was left of the ruined supplies, and took whatever else they could find from the region, which means the locals. It was enough to last them 40 more days, or the next month and some change. But the loss of the supply dump at Albuquerque was an enormous blow. Sibley ordered his troops north to Santa Fe, hoping to capture the stores there, but they were long gone, too. The territorial governor and the town's garrison had marched out with 120 wagons of food to rendezvous at Fort Union in the northeast corner of New Mexico territory. The Confederates arrived in New Mexico's territorial capital of Santa Fe on March 10th, seizing private property and terrorizing the locals. Mother Magdalene Hayden of a local Catholic academy wrote of her feelings on seeing the United States leave and the Confederacy enter her home city. Our poor and distant territory has not been spared. The Texans, without any provocation, have sacked and almost ruined the richest portions and have forced the most respectable families to flee from their homes. You can imagine better than I can describe what I felt on seeing all our troops and that banner under whose shadow I had been raised leave. The terror which I felt is inexpressible. So if you looked at a map of this campaign so far, with a bunch of arrows and dots and little crosses for battles, things would look good for the Confederates. They had won Valverde. They held Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Union forces were isolated and scattered. The Confederates seemed to have conquered New Mexico territory. But a map doesn't tell you about those nasty little details, like food supplies, numbers of sick and wounded, the starved and dead horses that lined the road up to Santa Fe, and dwindling Confederate morale. The Army of New Mexico was like the dog that had caught the car. They had New Mexico territory in theory, but they were running out of supplies, manpower, and options. They might have cut Canby off from the rest of the Union, but the reverse was also true. He sat along their only road home, blocking their retreat. And General Sibley was holed up in his Albuquerque headquarters, with his brain practically floating inside his skull. His army was isolated, hundreds of miles away from any other Confederate force. And Union reinforcements were coming. To the west, a brigade of 2,000 California volunteers, led by General James Carleton, was assembling at Fort Yuma on the Colorado River. Only a small company of Confederate cavalry stood in their way, and when they started east across Arizona aiming for Fort Bliss, they would pose a mortal threat to Sibley's army. The California Column was the sword waiting to fall on the Confederate invasion of New Mexico. So the Confederates realized they had to win the campaign fast and break the Union encirclement before it finally closed on them and destroyed them. Sibley decided to continue his offensive with two separate composite units of Texan soldiers, led by Major Charles Pyron of the 2nd, Texas, and Colonel William R. Scurry of the 4th. They would set out east, cross the Sangre de Cristo mountains, and attack Fort Union, held by only 800 men and supposedly demoralized after Valverde. Fort Union held food supplies, ammunition, and weapons, and it was the last stop on the Santa Fe Trail, the gateway to Colorado and Kansas, This was the last remaining supply depot in New Mexico that the Confederates even hoped to conquer. If the Confederates could capture Fort Union, the one fort that the Union really needed to hold in New Mexico, their invasion might still succeed and the West could be open to southern conquest. The Confederacy's hope of a Western Empire relied on 1,100 Texas volunteers riding east across the mountains. There was only one really good route through the mountains. The Santa Fe Trail from Santa Fe to Fort Union, then onwards to Denver and Kansas City, roughly parallels the modern I-25 and traverses Glorietta Pass. You ever driven this highway from El Paso to Albuquerque to Santa Fe and east towards Colorado or Kansas, you followed the path of Sibley's Army across hundreds of miles of American frontier. But that trail was about to reach its end. As the Texans approached Glorieta Pass from the west, another force of men, in blue, was approaching from the east. They were headed for the showdown that would decide the fate of New Mexico, the Gettysburg of the West. Sibley's Texas Volunteers headed east along the Santa Fe Trail towards Glorieta Pass, Fort Union and their crosshairs. Sibley himself was not with them. He was drinking himself to a stupor in Albuquerque, and the lack of command attention to this move was probably one of the big reasons for what eventually happened. The Texans were footsore, hungry, and tired, and their horses were in miserable shape, but they knew that one more push might bring them victory but the Texans were on a collision course with another dusty, weary, equally motivated column. There were Union troops headed to Glorieta Pass, most of them the newly recruited volunteers of the 1st Colorado Infantry. The newly organized Colorado Territory, literally organized in 1861, was almost empty, mostly occupied by Native American tribes and a scattering of mining towns. Denver City, as it was called, was a mining boomtown only a few years old, population less than 5,000. The first Colorado had been scraped together from the miners, pioneers, and general riffraff of the Denver area. Their colonel was John P. Slow, an unpopular officer hated by his own men. Many of his men didn't even call themselves Coloradans, after all the territory was less than a year old, but Pikes Peakers. The Coloradans were a rough-and-tumble bunch, only partially disciplined, full of courage, both liquid and regular. But when Canby's messages begging for help reached the neighboring territories, acting governor Lewis Weld responded. He ordered the first Colorado to march south and save New Mexico. The Coloradans, eager for a fight, raised a cheer when they learned they were off to fight the Texan invasion. The march began on February 22nd, and it turned into a miniature epic. The Pikes Peakers moved fast, crazy fast, even in the face of snow and wind and hail. When they heard about the news of Valverde and the Union defeat, they stepped up their pace even more, leaving everything behind but their weapons and blankets to make speed. As it would just, They were just pushing it. Their final push through a near hurricane, a snowstorm, covered 92 miles in 36 hours, a near suicidal rate, but the regiment arrived at Fort Union on March 11, 1862 but they wouldn't have long to rest. Against the advice of the experienced Colonel Gabriel Paul, commander of Fort Union, Slow decided to lead his Coloradans and most of the fort's garrison off to go fight the Texan army. He, like his men, was ready to go knock some heads. On March 22nd, Slow's force of around 1,300 men, including his Coloradans, some regulars, and some New Mexicans, marched west along the Santa Fe Trail. Some of these regulars and New Mexicans were veterans of Valverde, including several companies of the 1st and third U.S cavalry. Slow decided to send an advance guard of 400 troops, led by Major John Shivington, a ferocious Bible-thumping Denver preacher-turned soldier, to scout ahead. Shivington's detachment moved fast, approaching the eastern end of Glorieta Pass on the evening of March 25th. Major Pyron's battalion of around 400 Texan volunteers were encamped at the western end of the pass several miles away, each side completely unaware of the other. The next morning, March 26, Shivington's detachment ascended Glorieta Pass. The terrain here was different from the Rio Grande Valley, red sloping hills covered with pine and cedar, a tableau of dark green and red earth. But then his scouts surprised a group of Texan outposts. They ran back, telling their fellow Coloradans, We've got them corralled this time. Give them hell, boys. Hurrah for the Pikes Peakers. Chivington led his men into the mouth of Apache Canyon, the western side of Glorieta Pass, descending like thunder on Pyron's surprised Texans. The Confederates recovered quickly, opening fire with a pair of cannons. The Coloradans fanned out into the forested hills and advanced, flanking their opponents in long spread-out lines of sharpshooters. The Texans withdrew to one position, then another, finally making their stand in front of a narrow wooden bridge. Chivington, dual-wielding revolvers, one in each hand, yelled at a company of mounted Coloradans to charge across the narrow wooden bridge. In one of the dramatic moments, it gets exaggerated, it's like, oh my goodness, they jumped over the river. They did not jump over the river. The horsemen stormed across the bridge in a narrow column, pistols in hand. One confederate said, on they came to what I suppose certain destruction, but nothing like lead or iron seemed to stop them, for we were pouring it into them from every side like hail in a storm. In a moment, these devils had run the gauntlet for a half-mile and were fighting hand-to-hand with our men in the road. Shivington's charge broke the Confederate resistance. They retreated, leaving behind 71 prisoners, a large number for their small force. But the engagement at Apache Canyon on March 26th hadn't been fought by the main forces on either side. Colonel Scurry's Texans and Colonel Slow's column from Fort Union were still on the way, and now they moved with purpose. They knew that there was a battle on the horizon. Colonel Slow devised a plan to attack the Confederates in Glorieta Pass. He would divide his force. Major Chivington would take around 500 men, around one-third of the small army, in a flanking maneuver through the hills and mountains to the north, while Slow's main force of around 850 would move into Glorieta Pass and confront Scurry's main body. When the time was right, Chivington would br- burst out of the mountains and fall on Scurry's flank and rear, securing a Union victory. Dividing his force like this was a risky move, after all, each of these forces itself was smaller than the main Confederate force, but if it worked, they could annihilate half of Sibley's army in a single stroke. At early dawn on March 28, 1862, Chivington set out with his detachment of the army. As they threaded their way into the rugged hills to the south, Slow took the main Union force down the Santa Fe Trail. They stopped at about 11 a.m. to refill their canteens near a farm called Pigeon's Ranch, but they didn't have time to rest because his scouts immediately ran head on into a force of confederate scouts coming the opposite direction. One of the Coloradans yelled a challenge. Get out of our way, you damned sons of bitches! We are going to take our dinner in Santa Fe! And one of the confederate scouts yelled back. You'll take dinner in hell! Gotta say y'all, that is how you start a fight. So began the Battle of Glorietta Pass, the Gettysburg of the West. Both armies trickled in and assumed fighting formations. Slow tried to advance against the Texans at first, but quickly realized that he was heavily outnumbered. So he curled back into a defensive position, two small artillery batteries at the center of his line. All he had to do was hold the Confederates off until Chivington's flanking force came to the rescue from the south. The Union artillery dueled with the small rebel guns, while Scurry's Texans edged around either side of the Union lines, shooting from behind trees, dashing from rock to rock. Company I of the First Colorado tried to sneak through a ravine to capture the Rebel guns, but they were spotted. It came to shotgun blasts and knife attacks in the gully as the Pike's Peekers were thrown back, leaving dead and wounded behind. Colonel Slow was growing anxious. Where the hell was Chivington? The rocky hills and scrub pine forests of the past crackled with the sound of rifle and pistol fire. Small knots of infantry dashed around behind rocks and through ditches and gullies, men in blue and gray and homespun and any mixture of all three. Squads of horsemen kicked up dust moving from one flank to the other, and the few cannons each side had sent balls ricocheting through the dry pine forests. No more than a thousand men on either side were fighting in this strange battle, bearded Colorado miners and slim New Mexican natives versus wild Texan ranchers and cowboys. One side waved old glory. The other side wave not the familiar confederate battle flag that we all know but a red banner with a white star a lone star flag a texas flag like i said this is almost more of a fight between individual states than it is between the union and the confederacy scurry's men began to overlap the union positions threatening to flank them from both sides slow ordered a withdrawal 800 yards back to a new position on a ridge near pigeons ranch an area where the pass narrowed to a slit canyon When the rebels gave chase, the repositioned Union artillery drove them back, disabling two of the Confederate guns as sharpshooters picked off the crews. But Scurry ordered the Texans into the attack once again, making a frontal assault against an adobe wall defended by the Colorado infantry. A reckless assault like this had won the Battle of Valverde, and maybe it would win this battle but Scurry's repeated charges were bloody failures as volley after volley dropped Texans from the saddle and shells from Union Mountain howitzers burst in the sand. Slow was under pressure. Where the hell was Chivington? He was supposed to show up from the flank attack to the south. Then the Texans slipped around the Union's northern flank. Major Pyron led his battalion over the rocks and into the high ground, running head-on into three companies of Coloradans and one of the 3rd U.S. Cavalry. The fighting was nearly point-blank here, gun barrel to gun barrel, pistol and knife and rifle butt. One Coloradan soldier, Private Ben Ferris, was wounded in the fight. Dodging from tree to tree, zip, something hit my leg. It did not hurt much, but numbed my leg somewhat. I thought best to get back while I could. I rode alone to the rear where the doctor had a wagon for a hospital by the side of the road. Doc cut a hole in the back of my leg put in a hook, and pulled out the flattened ounce ball. It is likely that Private Ferris had at most a swig of whiskey and something to bite down on. Civil War battlefield medicine was not a picnic. With the Confederates flanking his second line, Slow ordered his men to fall back to a third line east of the ranch. The Texans followed, but slowly. They had been fighting for six hours, night was coming, neither side was willing to break or give up, and both sides were utterly exhausted. As soon as the sun began to sink, Slow ordered his men to withdraw from the field. The Coloradans grumbled that they weren't beaten, they could have kept fighting, and they probably could have, but both sides were bushed, and they left the Confederates in possession of Glorietta Pass. The rebels celebrated the victory for about five minutes, until they learned what had gone down while they had been fighting the battle. At 10 p.m. that evening, Major Chivington and his flanking force came riding back into the Union camp. Slow was furious. Where were you? You missed the battle. The whole plan fell apart because you never showed up. You were supposed to flank the enemy. We lost the battle. Where were you? Chivington said, Hey boss, we were off winning the battle. Rewind about 10 hours. As the Battle of Glorieta Pass had been going on behind him, Chivington had taken his men 16 miles across the mountains, led by Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Chavez of the New Mexico Militia. Manuel Chavez had served in the Mexican Army during the Mexican-American War. He knew these mountains like the back of his hand. He had been ordered to defend them from the Americans, ironically, when that war began. Chavez guided Shivington's flanking force to a high 200-foot bluff overlooking the western end of the pass, and there, virtually unguarded, sat the entire Confederate supply train. The Union troops rappelled down the bluff with ropes and rifles in hand. The few Confederates defending the baggage train were overwhelmed, most of them falling prisoner. Then Shivington's men destroyed everything they could find. Cannons were disabled, supply wagons ransacked, horses and mules slaughtered or sent racing off into the hills. Finally, Ch- the, the Coloradans blew up every single cart with a barrel of gunpowder. The Union men withdrew after half an hour of destruction, accompanied by at least one escaping slave, whose name we don't actually know, it, just, it just came from the letters. Private Charles Gardner reported that, Before we reached the top, nearly every wagon had exploded, and sitting to rest upon the top, we witnessed every wagon with its contents a smoldering heap of ruins. So while Slow and Scurry's troops had been duking it out in the main battle of Glorietta Pass, Chivington's flanking force had hamstrung the Confederate army. The destruction of the Confederate supply train changed the entire context of the Battle of Glorieta Pass. On the surface, it was a Confederate tactical victory. They had won the field, even if both sides had suffered almost exactly the same casualties—46 dead, 64 Union wounded, and 46 dead and 60 Confederate wounded. But the loss of their supply train—all their food, all their clothes, all their horses—made everything that had happened at Pigeon's Ranch irrelevant. It was the decisive event of the New Mexico campaign. One confederate reported, Here we are, a thousand miles from home. Not a wagon, not a dust of flour, not a pound of meat. Another said, Flushed with the joy of winning the battle, we were suddenly confronted with the fact that after all, we had lost the victory. The Battle of Glorieta Pass was a decisive Union victory. The Confederate Army of New Mexico could take one nameless ridge after another all they wanted, but they were now starving, freezing, and isolated in the New Mexico wilderness. This is actually a strange but important example in military history, of winning the combat, but losing the battle. Glorieta Pass would be the Confederate high-water mark west of the Mississippi, the farthest they would ever get, the last chance for victory, the Gettysburg of the West. With hardly even a bite to eat, leaving their wounded behind for the Union to capture, after all, they had no carts to carry them anymore, the Texans staggered back to Santa Fe on foot, their mission to capture Fort Union abandoned. As they filed into the territorial capital, the town's women set up a hospital to care for the wounded that did make it back. One of these women was, ironically, Louisa Canby, who was helping to heal the men her husband's soldiers had shot. She would be remembered by the Confederates as an honorable woman, the Angel of Santa Fe. As the Union forces also fell back to Fort Union, believing that they had lost the battle, too, Colonel Slow decided that he had had enough civil war for the time being and resigned his commission. The first Colorado's new colonel would be John Shivington. Don't feel too good about this guy. He has some really horrific Indian massacres in his future. He will commit one of the worst, the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. So, whatever he is in this story, he's a bad guy in a bunch of other stories. Sibley was fully aware of the scale of the disaster. The defeat at Glorieta had virtually destroyed any hope he had of conquering a western empire for the confederacy. With half his wagon train a smoldering ruin, the iron hand of logistics had suddenly closed around the neck of the army of New Mexico. And worst of all, Canby was on the move leaving fort craig and marching up the west bank of the rio grande chivington's coloradans had turned around and were coming back west as well the union smelled blood sibley's army had been hamstrung and now it was time to run it down as canby marched north threatening sibley's last remaining supply cache at albuquerque the confederates rushed south to defend it but when sibley reached the town canby was nowhere to be seen it had been a ruse the wily Union commander had threatened Albuquerque as a diversion to draw Sibley out of Santa Fe. Union cavalry had recaptured the city behind him and Canby had slipped around to the east and linked up with the Coloradans under Shivington. The Union forces had now combined and outnumbered Sibley's army. Sibley and his officers had no choice but to admit that the campaign was a failure. The Confederates only had 20 days of rations left and nowhere to get more. One of Sibley's staff officers reported, Our transportation was in bad condition. We could have but one wagon to the company, and the mules were poor and weak. Again, like I said, the the shortage of food told the worst on the horses. Almost all of Sibley's pack animals were too weak to pull anything, or were dead. Most of their artillery and baggage had to be abandoned in Albuquerque. The new objective was to escape, but that would be easier said than done. Fort Craig still lay across the main road back to El Paso, blocking their line of retreat. Sibley believed that with Canby and most of his troops now away from the fort, maybe he could actually take it. But then that plan fell to pieces as well. In the pre-dawn hours of April 15, 1862, Canby's army suddenly appeared above the Confederate camp at Peralta on the Rio Grande. Canby failed to press the attack. He failed to make the attack very energetically, and the Battle of Peralta was little more than a brief exchange of gunfire before the Confederates withdrew to the south. His troops were furious that Canby hadn't launched a more decisive blow. They accused Canby of still being friends with Sibley, but the battle had done what Canby needed it to do: hustled the Confederates out of New Mexico. One note: this is the battle, Battle of Peralta, that is depicted in *The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly*. But the Battle of Peralta was much smaller than the movie Battle, was basically only a skirmish, and certainly didn't involve masses of infantry charging across a bridge or trench warfare or Gatling guns. Neither side in this campaign had Gatling guns at all. Granted, the movie was also trying to make a point about the cruelty and futility of warfare, since it was made in the Vietnam era, so it was more of an artistic choice than a historically accurate choice. But now you know. The Battle in the classic Western, one of my favorite movies, honestly, is supposed to be the Battle of Peralta. But what this battle meant was that now Canby was breathing down Sibley's neck. He was right behind him. There was no chance of trying to take Fort Craig or even fighting a serious battle at all. The Confederates were weak and exhausted and low on ammo. There was only one way to escape. They would have to march through the wilderness west of Fort Craig, a bleak, open desert. It would be perilous, but it was their only way out. The Army of New Mexico abandoned most of their wagons loaded up their mules with seven days' rations and blankets, left all their wounded behind, and filed into the desert. The eight-day, hundred-mile march through the the desert was the final destruction of Sibley's army. They choked from the lack of water, staggered across barren canyons, and starved as they trudged up and down wooded mountains. Men fell dead from heat stroke, exhaustion, dehydration. And through it all, the men of the Fifth Texas struggled with the six field guns they had captured at Valverde, their only trophies of this ruined campaign. They refused to give them up. And somehow the guns made it, hauled up and down cliffs by ropes and manpower. And through it all, Sibley destroyed any shreds of confidence his men might have still had. He spent the whole march in his drinking wagon, accompanied by a few pro-Southern women who had evacuated with the army. His men barely even saw his face. The Confederates openly cursed their commander, blaming him for all their failures, the final collapse of his military reputation. The wrecked Confederate army finally crawled out of the desert south of Fort Craig on April 25th. Camby didn't bother chasing them. He knew, they all knew, that the campaign was over. The Union didn't need to destroy them. The desert had destroyed them. But the rebels had no time to rest. They were still in danger. The California Column had finally gotten moving, 2,000 troops under General James Carleton approaching Fort Bliss from the west. They had been skirmishing with a few rebel troops in modern Arizona, including the small fight at Stanwyck Station on March 30th, which has the distinction of being the westernmost battle of the American Civil War. But now they were on a roll, reaching Tucson on May 20th and heading east for Mesilla. There was no hope of successfully defending, the Confederate Territory of Arizona. The Army of New Mexico prepared to finally abandon their namesake land. In late June, Sibley and all Confederate forces in New Mexico and West Texas began the long 650-mile march back to San Antonio. They were just in time. Carleton's Californians reached the Rio Grande behind them on July 4, 1862. The Union reoccupied Mesilla, El Paso, and Fort Bliss, and Old Glory once again held dominion throughout the New Mexico Territory. The Confederate Empire in the West had disappeared. Sibley's final march through West Texas shattered what was left of his men's morale. One woman, a stagecoach passenger, saw the men walking like zombies along the track from El Paso to San Antonio. She said, They were suffering terribly from the effects of the heat. Many of them are afoot and scarcely able to travel from blistered feet. They are subsisting on bread and water, both officers and men. Many of them were sick, many ragged, and all hungry. They were all cheerful, for their faces were turned homewards. We are going home. Of the 3,500 men who had marched to New Mexico with General Henry Hopkins Sibley, 500 had died, and 500 were either missing or taken prisoner. The brigade would continue to serve in the Confederate Army, fighting Union forces in Louisiana and on the Texas coast to the end of the war. The six field guns captured at Valverde would equip a new artillery battery, nicknamed the Valverde Battery, and would be used against the Union in battles to come. But they were the only tangible benefit from the Army of New Mexico's failed adventure. Some Confederates still wanted to revive the ambition to conquer an empire in New Mexico. John Baylor, who still claimed to be governor of Arizona Territory, would advocate this until the end of the war. But his reputation had been ruined by his genocidal orders against the Apache, which cost him any credit he had with the Confederate government. By the time Sibley's army returned to San Antonio in late summer 1862, the entire context of the war had changed. Despite their cautious optimism of late 1861, the South had experienced terrible defeats, A little-known general named Ulysses S. Grant had begun his invasions of Tennessee, splitting the South nearly in two with his fighting spirit and mastery of logistics. A Union fleet had captured New Orleans, Memphis and Nashville had fallen, and a Union army was knocking at the gates of Richmond. The South would have no resources to spare for conquest in the future. They had enough problems holding on to what they had. The Confederacy would never again try to conquer any Western territory. Colonel Canby, whose careful strategy and sound judgment had probably saved New Mexico for the Union, was promoted to general and served in multiple key positions during the Civil War. While on duty fighting the Modoc Indians in California in 1873, Canby was assassinated during a peace conference, the only general officer killed in the Indian Wars. His wife, the Angel of Santa Fe, died 16 years later, and their graves lie together in Indianapolis. General Henry Hopkins Sibley went from defeat to defeat. His incompetence and his alcohol problem continued to dog his military career. After he was put in charge of a baggage train in 1863 and boloed even that, he was court-martialed, and though he was acquitted, Sibley was never given another field command. He sought employment abroad after the war, but even brief service in the Egyptian army was not successful. The uh, ruler of Egypt fired this walking whiskey keg. He was dismissed, returned to America, and died in obscurity in Fredericksburg, Virginia in 1886. The two former friends had waged a small campaign, a distant campaign, a campaign low in numbers and casualties, but not in impact. Men from Texas, Colorado, California, and New Mexico had dueled for the fate of the American West, and the United States had emerged triumphant. When the Union finally prevailed in 1865, the great bloodbaths east of the Mississippi had long overshadowed this early important little campaign that ensured that only one American nation, the Free Republic rather than the Slave Empire, would extend from sea to shining sea. So, what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So that was the story of the Confederate invasion of New Mexico in 1862. A campaign that probably wouldn't have, but might have, resulted in the South conquering the West during the Civil War, with untold consequences for the future of the nation and the outcome of the conflict. So what can we learn from this story? So first off, now that we're done, one of the big things to note is that very few people do know about this story, even if they live in or around the area. And that's mostly because the Civil War isn't a tourist industry in Texas or New Mexico, the same way it is in Virginia or Tennessee or Georgia. There just weren't many people living out here at the time, there were only a few people involved, and there wasn't a lot of emotional significance placed on these events. And to be fair, they were pretty small, I've made it clear. This was a small campaign, almost miniature compared to big honkin' battles like Gettysburg or Antietam or Shiloh or Atlanta. I refer to Glorieta Pass by the nickname New Mexicans gave it, the Gettysburg of the West. Not because of its size, but because, just like Gettysburg in the East, it was the high-water mark of Confederate ambitions. The South never got as far north as Gettysburg again, and they never got as far west as they did in New Mexico. They never got as far in that campaign as at their final defeat at Glorieta Pass. But to me, that's part of what makes it so fascinating. This is a completely different civil war than the one people usually imagine. The distant locations, the rugged desert terrain, the lack of supplies, and the natures of the armies raised in these areas, the whole shape and style of conflict just looked radically different than it did back east, in the Civil War we all envisioned in our heads, where Grant and Lee and Sherman and Stonewall Jackson were fighting their famous campaigns. This story looks more like a Wild West show, just add Union and Confederate uniforms. This one of the West's most famous Westerns ever made, was filmed in the background of this conflict. So why did the Confederacy fail to capture New Mexico? I have one big answer for you. Logistics. The Confederate logistic problems in this campaign were so enormous and so inbuilt, this wasn't someone's fault necessarily, they were going to be a problem no matter what the Confederacy did, that I think the entire idea of the campaign was kind of bad, launching... An invasion of New Mexico at all was probably not feasible. Even a good general, which a uh, drink and wagon Sibley was not, would have had a lot of trouble leading this invasion under the constraints of the iron hand of logistics. The distances, the lack of wagons and horses and supplies, the need for food, all that would have been a major problem for anyone. The only way the Army of New Mexico could have succeeded in this campaign was if they got very lucky and seized Union supplies early. Of course, the Union had something to do with it. Even though they lost both the major battles of Valverde and Glorieta Pass on the field, Valverde damaged and Glorieta crippled the Confederate supply system, the thing that was their Achilles' heel, the biggest problem from the beginning. Union officers like Canby and Shivington found this weakness and exploited it. This is one of the reasons I say good commanders have to account for a lot of stuff besides fighting, Logistics isn't just important to sustain your own forces, but also because attacking your enemy's logistics is one of the keys to victory sometimes. Just ask the Ukrainians. Both sides in this campaign fought bravely. Troops from every state were equally courageous, whether they were New Mexico farmers, Texas ranchers, or Colorado miners. But superior Union strategy and Confederate failures in leadership and judgment ultimately won the New Mexico campaign for the North. Could the South have won? Could they have conquered the West? I'll tell you guys, it was a long shot, even without Sibley. Whenever someone tells you the Confederacy had better leaders on the whole, you know, the Confederacy had better military leadership, ask them if you've ever heard of Henry Hopkins Sibley, who was, Ulysses S. Grant often gets accused of being the drunk general of the Civil War, but Grant was almost never drunk during the course of the war. Sibley was drunk during the critical battles of the campaign. It may have been, but still, it may have been beyond Confederate capabilities at any point in the war to make this operation a success, no matter who was in charge. But as I always say, nothing was inevitable. Under a good Confederate leader, a bad Union one, a little luck here, a little turn of fortune there, stranger things have happened. The future of a continent was at stake in those early months of 1862. The New Mexico campaign remained obscure for decades, despite the efforts of veterans and New Mexico locals to publicize its story. Finally, in 1991, parts of the Glorieta battlefield were transferred to the National Park system, where they are part of Pecos National Park, east of Santa Fe. I think it's a good little stop for a road trip sometime. Breathe the dry air, look look out over the pine trees and scrub, and know that once upon a time, a small but important battle took place here, far away from the familiar Civil War scenery. Could the Confederates have conquered this territory? Could they have gone on to win the Civil War based on their conquest of the West? It certainly seemed like a possibility in those turbulent days of 1862, when a bunch of volunteer warriors, Colorado miners, and Texan ranchers collided in the Gettysburg of the West. And guys... I want to thank every single one of you for listening today and throughout this entire season of the Unknown Soldiers podcast. Today's episode is the last episode of season one. I'm trying to to end on a high note, and it is high time that I took what I think is a well-deserved break. The Unknown Soldiers podcast will be on regular schedule hiatus for the next three months. I need to ta- time to write some more material, do some reading, kick back and paint some models, and... Go to the gym and spend some time with my family. Do the things I need to do. Now calm down, I can hear you getting antsy. I may or may not have some content coming up for you in the interval. This includes, should be next week, I'm working on it still, my very first interview with a published author, the first of a subseries I'll probably end up calling Unknown Scholars. So look for that at some point in the near future. And check back on Monday next week, I should have it up by then. And I may have some other stuff coming up to bridge the gap. Just keep your eyes peeled. I will post any new releases on my usual sites, Facebook, Twitter, and of course my website at UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com. So when will this hiatus end, James? When will the flower of your voice blossom once again in the desert of my podcast feed? Well folks, I can tell you that Unknown Soldiers Podcast Season 2 is slated to begin on September 5th, 2022, and I think that's pretty set in stone. It will be a different schedule, a staggered semi-weekly schedule of full episodes, with bonus episodes or short rounds on the off weeks sometimes. No more Friday releases in the future. This new schedule has been in the works for a while, I mentioned it a couple months ago, a much needed adjustment due to the rapid pace of work I did for season 1. Hopefully the content quality increases even more, and I hope that you all like what I have in store for you in season 2. No, just to tease you, let's see. On September 5th, 2022, I plan to take us back where season one also began. It is the long-awaited, much-requested return to the Graveyard of Empires, the second time the British Empire invaded Afghanistan and how it didn't go much better. And the season's first series will deal with what I consider to be America's most forgotten war, our first overseas land war and the first foreign counterinsurgency war, almost absent from your history books and pop culture. So in October, we will be talking about the Philippine-American War of 1899-1902, guest starring Theodore Roosevelt, Mark Twain, John Pershing, and a very, very young Douglas MacArthur. In addition, we will visit places like New Guinea, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Palestine, Persia, Paraguay, and most exotic of all, Oklahoma. All on the agenda for Season 2, Get Psyched. But until then, everyone, this is goodbye. Not for long. You'll hear from me again and sooner than you think. Don't forget to keep checking on Facebook or Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod or email me at UnknownSoldiersPodcast at gmail.com. Check out my website at UnknownSoldiersPodcast.com and my numerous articles on various battles and campaigns throughout history. I'll probably be sprucing those up over the next couple months just to rehabilitate the website. It needs some maintenance. Or if you want a good book on any of the battles and figures I talked about in this season, all the sources are on my website as well in order. And if you like what you've heard, if you want to know more, if you want input into what comes next for the Unknown Soldiers podcast and how I can improve it, please feel free to email me or message me whenever you like. If you're going to give input, it's now when I'm still in the planning stages of season two. And I will make a last request. Spread the word. I will do some marketing on my own, but what keeps me going is the fact that I know people are listening and more people the better. You can recommend any episode you like. I have a wide array of topics and locations and time periods. I personally think there's something for everyone in here. If they don't like Entebbe, maybe they'll like hearing about Sparta. If they don't like the South Atlantic Death Ride, maybe they'll like Camp Followers. Maybe they want a series. Maybe they want standalone episodes. I have a diverse set of stuff. I think my work is pretty consistently high quality, and I bet it's addictive. People go in thinking, oh, here's a Sparta episode. I know what Sparta is. And then a week later, they're hearing about some samurai invasion of Korea. My point is, if you do nothing else to help keep this podcast going, I'm grateful for whatever help I get. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell the neutrals about it. I get nothing out of this except what people choose to donate and the joy I get from knowing people are listening. So that is all I ask. See you all next time. It'll come sooner than you think. Don't forget to check back. The Unknown Soldiers Podcast will return on September 5th, 2022.